0: Welcome to the Dow of WOW, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art. For good measure, I'm Laura Hilliger.
1: And I'm Doug Belshaw. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com forward slash We Are Open.
0: This season of the podcast is looking at the future of new literacies as part of a submission to the winter 2023 edition of the Journal for Media Literacy, or JML, as you'll hear us refer to it. Our essential question for this podcast series is, how can we define the future of media and information literacy in both theory
1: and practice? So today our guest is Roz Husson, who's an instructional architect, coach, and consultant. And we first came across Roz when she contributed to the work on Mozilla's web literacy map. Roz travels the world currently in Malaysia, but has um, lived and worked in, in many other countries as well. Roz, welcome. And our first question to everyone is always, what is your favorite book or books?
2: Thank you, Doug. And because I know you embrace multidisciplinary perspectives, I'm going to navigate this question a little bit differently. So the first thing is I'll give you my favorite input, which is for Forrest Gump and then because i'm a compliant nonconformist i'll share with you what you asked for which is the book um, huh. and one that i've recently read is uh, the title's a little long it's called my grandmother told me to tell you i'm sorry so these these two the, the movie and the book they share something in common basically mm. it's about people who don't fit in the norm but they will not break the rules
1: Interesting. Okay, and you see yourself in that in many ways?
2: Perhaps, like I said, I consider myself a compliant non-conformist.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Maybe I can
2: give you a little background on that if if you'd like. Mm. I I also consider myself a TCK, a third culture kid, a cross culture right. kid.
1: Yep. So, so spanning two different, two quite different parts of the world, I guess. And that's why we're, we're interested in talking to you today about, about new literacies and the kind of the future of that in many ways. So we're talking to people from theoretical backgrounds and practical backgrounds and people who span the two. Could you maybe introduce some of the work that you've done and are currently doing in this area? Because that will help give some context for listeners.
2: Well, it stems back to the fact that if a person is um, intersectional in their very being, you know, the culture that they grew up in is from multiple uh, perspectives, uh, is from different different areas geographically and also different parts of the social economic society or or, or whatever criteria that you consider people to come from, Um, I think I definitely, I fall into the category of being from everywhere and nowhere. Um, So the background of work that I've done is also quite intersectional. I am an architect by profession, the kind that builds buildings, you know, bricks and steel and glass and all of that. But um, I did go back to school twice. And uh, my second profession is as an instructional designer. So I build people. Um, And and the context of that, if uh, I were to say... Uh, parallel between the building of physical entities versus the building of humans um it requires a different kind of skill set uh so that that would be that would be the context uh and 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 i'll wait for you to ask me more questions before i go more deeply into that
1: (laughs) i know that you've got a lot of examples that you want to give um in the in the little introductory chat we had before recording i know that um there were some fascinating examples that you wanted to have a chance to talk about. Um, But Laura's got the next question. Do you want to go through that Laura?
0: um, So Ross, you were just talking about intersectionality and we're actually using a series of lenses to sort of help us explore this key question around the future of media and information literacy. And the lenses that we've chosen are race, gender, AI, and geography Um, And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how those four lenses sort of intersect for you and what you think that they mean um, in terms of like the future of literacies.
2: So when I think about intersectionality of geography um, and different demographics of people, um, perhaps it'd be easier if I share with you some of the work that I've done Maybe the beginning would be way back about 10, 15 years ago was probably the first time that I was introduced to the concept of um, technology being a solution for people who don't have access. And it's ironic because the very people who don't have access to education or to modern Um, facilities, like the Native Americans, I was working in the Indigenous Roots Program for about eight years, uh, way back in uh, 2010, 2011 onwards. I helped people to become connected to the distance between the teachers and the students, and also between the whole learning community and the resources that they're connected to, the schools or the university. And fast forward 15 years later, um, I'm again involved with different Indigenous people, this time in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, the uh, semi-tribes up in the mountains. And during COVID, the only way able to survive was to learn about how to use mobile learning tools uh, in order to produce documents um, that they needed to fight for their land rights, they've been able to learn how to communicate because of the wonderful tools that are available to them. Um, and some of these tools, you know, the AI tools that convert audio to text and can spontaneously translate uh, from one language to another. It's really impressive to see how people accelerate in their learning. Uh, in order to survive.
1: So what I find fascinating about what you've just been talking about with Indigenous people is that they don't necessarily have to have what we would consider to be kind of regular literate practices. So being able to produce text and, re- and read text to be able to be literate in their society as, it, as it's required now. So you gave the example of being able to maybe... Um, use AI tools or or record things that shouldn't be happening on their land and use that as admissible evidence in court. These are literate behaviors, but they're not what we would traditionally consider to be literate behaviors. And as that as that as those literate practices are evolving, as they always do, sometimes it means that people and um uh, tribes and communities, end up leapfrogging entire literate practices that maybe we in the West or in kind of wealthier global North nations have seen as quote-unquote normal because they don't need those literate practices because they're going straight to something else. And that is absolutely Yeah, fascinating. absolutely.
2: Absolutely. It's from cavemen to cyberdom, um, you know. And, you know, it's not just people from the rural or or outback areas. I have seen this during my work uh, when I worked in China for a bit. Um, I find it fascinating and amusing. I was walking from the train station to the office, and my colleague who was walking right next to me uh, very nonchalantly said, Hey, by the way, do you like bubble tea? And I'm like, yeah, I like bubble tea on the sidewalk, minding our business, going from the train station, and not more than three to five minutes after she asked me the question, some guy just walks right up to us and hands us a cup of bubble tea each. And I'm like, whoa, why did that guy just give us a cup of bubble tea? And my colleague said, well, that's because I heard it while we were walking. So GPS real-time locators is, is a con- so you know that's a different type of literacy that's nothing to do with reading or writing or you know literacy that we know of it's just knowing that it's all right to give out gps locator information i mean in the western world you'd say that's private you know where i am is is a private security issue but you know in other cultures it's more important to have speed and efficiency and convenience so Commerce and and expectations of how services are delivered has absolutely changed in different parts of the world, and and that's beyond amazing if you ask me.
1: Yeah, I mean it really is. Um, we still don't have things like Deliveroo and Uber Eats in the town that I live. And so for people to be able to walk along <laughs> and have things in, thrust into their hands after, or, yeah, after ordering on a mobile... Yeah, you well, don't,
2: you don't even need to put in an address anymore to order food. I mean, that's ridiculous, you know?
1: Well, that, that is... I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of... So I remember when my dad was in the Middle East, it was very difficult to send things to him because the way that we have kind of Western postcodes and street numbers and stuff didn't really correspond to where he was living in kind of a desert town in the in the UAE. And so it's very difficult to send things. And so those kind of literate practices predicated on things like sending letters and parcels just didn't map onto that world. And what you're describing there and what you've pulled out of that is instead of a fixed place that I'm going to send a thing to, the things that I am creating are temporary, i.e. the bubble tea, And they're being delivered to a temporary address, which is me walking down this street.
2: Yeah, but think about the more important part of this. It's not just about what's able to be done, but what are the... Prerequisite skills and knowledge that people need to have in order to live in this type of world. The trust that you need to have in the system, the ability to ensure that your handheld devices are secure, the kind of level of competency you need to have in ensuring data security for yourself, and ensuring that you're constantly, even something as simple as making sure you have enough battery supply. Those are sort of prerequisite fundamental individual knowledge skills, which we currently do not have in our education system. The K-12 or whatever traditional primary, secondary and tertiary education that we have in the Western world is absolutely inadequate to prepare us for what skills
0: we need in this new fast paced AI world. I find this story really interesting and I'm, I find myself a little bit confused about how, how it actually works because it seems like the person that delivered you the bubble tea had to recognize you, which means that your colleague who ordered it had to provide some sort of a description about who you are, where you were. No, you were no, it's all real time. It's just real time GPS when you allow your device to be tracked. Right. And so I take it, it wasn't a very busy street. Oh, it was absolutely busy downtown Shanghai. We're talking right. about hundreds of people on the sidewalk. Exactly and the so so hundreds of people on the sidewalk that have a, the same GPS. I don't know. They seem to have a way
2: where That's if your, your phone is right next to uh, the other phone. I mean, I I mm. use a um, you know you called. You know every country has their own sort of um transportation and and I'm currently in Malaysia and there's this thing here it's called grab I guess it's like an Uber and you know I see the cars that are coming you know around the neighborhood and and I can tell which car is 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 showing up to pick me up I mean yeah there's a little description on it but you know you see the dot on the screen moving and they see the dot mm-hmm. of you moving um and they know if you're not where the machine says you are, you know, and and you can get scolded by the driver if you're not standing where you say you are.
1: Well, I I think you're absolutely right in kind of talking about, you know, there's the technology and then there's the literate practices around the technology. And the technology can be writing on a page. The technology can be what you've just described in terms of mobile technology. The technology, to kind of tee up another example, which I know that you wanted to talk about, can be real-time translation between two people who don't speak the same language.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this one is a personal experience for me. I was in um, a different part of China, and I thought I was minding my own business, doing my evening exercise. I'm a martial arts practitioner, and usually I love um, enjoying a sunset and sort of doing my meditative Tai Chi Sort of semi-dark, and I was just standing there doing my exercise. And suddenly, a policeman runs up to me, and he reaches for his pocket. And I thought, my God, what did I do wrong? He was yelling at me, and I had no idea what he was saying. Uh, my Chinese is as good as my Russian, which I don't speak either of them. And and instead of uh, pulling out a weapon or some kind of reprimanding device, he pulls out his cell phone. And I'm 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 just wondering what is he asking for my phone number. And instead he, he just kind of did something on the screen and then he put the, you know, the, the phone right up to my face and the phone talked to me in English because he could tell I couldn't speak Chinese. And, and and the phone was telling me that, you know, what I was doing is illegal because you're not allowed to do martial arts at night because, you know, it's, they deem it as a, you know, some kind of dangerous mafia Uh, gangster type activity. But anyway, I had no clue how to answer him. And he, you know, just kind of pointed, you know, whether I have a phone, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can do that, too. So there we were two people. Um, We weren't talking to each other because we couldn't communicate in a common language. But my phone spoke to him in Chinese and his phone spoke to my phone in English. And that went on for about 15 minutes till we found a solution to, you know, me not getting arrested it's It's incredible. The skills that you need to have to be able to function when there is an environment that has moved beyond what you're familiar with. It's incredible. The level of accelerated learning you have to go through is quite daunting but mm. exhilarating.
1: And And that's that isn't just having existing literate practices that is having the flexibility to learn new ones on the fly as well.
2: Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. And so I I call it um, spontaneous learning or, or rapid refocusing. A lot of people, you know, they don't like the word um, uh, multitasking because, yeah, I mean, the human brain doesn't really multitask, but we can teach ourselves to do rapid refocusing. And that is what is necessary when you are confronted in a situation new spontaneously or seemingly spontaneously, and then assessing the situation that you're in and adjusting on the fly. And that rapid refocusing is something that's a basic need, I think, now. So it's almost like we humans have to become like the artificial intelligence that we are working with. And that's a skill that we need to to look at. I think the first question you asked me, Doug, which is what is my favorite book? And I answered you, my favorite movie and and a book that I've read recently. Both of those stories, what I really like about it is that they depict people in our current present day society who are outliers, people who we feel are a little odd, or they have a different way of looking at life, or maybe they're born with a different way of thinking for whatever way, whatever reason. But these outliers, they are survivors. They have always been the outliers. The world is not their oyster. And so they have had to create coping mechanisms that allow them to function in their own world, their own culture, their own standard operating procedure, but at the same time, even though they don't fit into the world that is around them, they survive. Uh, So that's why I said by being a a non-conformist, but a compliant one, and that is actually an important skill, to be able to not have to change the world, but to adapt to it. And allow both worlds to exist simultaneously. I think that's the skill that we need to have uh, in facing the new literacies out there that are needed.
0: Yeah, there's this. Uh, there's this really interesting tension here around what you know, what the literature and academia is showing us um, around you know how people are using technology or what technology is doing to society in terms of you know, that our ability to focus and our attention. And I I was just thinking a little bit about, about how we use technology to distract ourselves. And I think that, that the, this rapid refocusing as a, as a skill that can come off the back of, of distraction or come off the back of Mm -hmm. the, our attention being in some way funneled a different way is a, is a really interesting way to sort of think about the, the positive, the positive aspects of our own attention spans and our own distractions. So Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think at the moment, there's so much hype, negative hype about
2: children not having an attention span focus. I think we need to pause and not judge that because there are kids and adults who, who, all these years, you know, we say, oh, they've got ADHD or they've got Asperger's oh, they've got some kind of whatever on the spectrum and they're not able to focus. But guess what? These people, they have survived and many of them thrive and they have no problem being in the normal world. It's us normal people or, or you, you normal people or other people who are normal, claim to be normal, who seemingly have a problem with the type of people who can survive and can cope in an ever-changing world. And so maybe we need to take a step back and stop judging that and learning to, to value different perspectives and to understand that different people come with their own sets of skills and, and values. And I think maybe, maybe we could learn from um, the outliers of the world, you know, because the skills that they've had all these years are suddenly now very valuable. And and I think the, the norm or the average person has never bothered to go that way because, because they're the majority. And why bother changing the majority, right? In the past, but now that mm-hmm. we can see Some minorities, some nonconformists, some outliers, they are not faced by these changes in the world. I mean, look at COVID. Everybody was sort of screaming murder when, when they had to adapt to working from home. But look at those people who've been working from home ever since the beginning of the Internet. I mean, Doug, you and I, Laura, we were some of the pioneers back in the day, the bleeding edge. And we didn't have much of a problem um, dealing with working from home because we we already had our bleeding edge back then. Well, apart,
1: apart, apart from the biscuit tin, that was the main problem for me when I started working from home. <laughs> but I, I wanted to kind of just go back quickly to what you were talking about in terms of ADHD and, and, and that kind of thing. So... Notwithstanding, there are very real things that happen in people's brains, which make us different from one another. One of the books that I read when I was uh, just training to teach, actually, was a book by Neil Postman and Charles Weingartner, which is Teaching as a Subversive Activity, which talks about how you learn... the, The literate practices aren't just the academic practices that Laura was talking about before, they're the kind of lived practices, like you learn to do school, you learn how to operate mm-hmm. in that kind hidden of environment. Hidden
2: curriculum.
1: Yeah. In the, the hidden same way curriculum
2: you, behind it all.
1: Yeah, in the same way that you've talked kind of about being in different countries and what uh, different normal behaviors are in those countries, different literate practices, what's entirely a regular thing to do, like walk down the street and order some bubble tea to come and be um, kind of dropped to you as you're walking along. So what I just wanted to pull out of that part of the conversation was that we identify literate practices, and then we almost freeze them and solidify them for the purposes of formal education. And then we wrap additional practices around those. And then we talk about the whole thing as being education. And sometimes it's a bit of a straitjacket, and it's a little bit too solidified to actually help young people, and older people for that matter, universities, lifelong learning, to operate effectively in a very fast-changing world.
2: I absolutely agree. And, you know, some of the more recent things that I've learned have come from the most unimaginable sources. And and you don't have to go to a foreign country to see how different cultures can can teach you new things. I've interacted a lot with foreign workers uh, in different countries. So you've got sort of people from... Myanmar and Bangladesh working in Malaysia, or you've got people from Mexico working in the US, or you've got people from Australia working in Malaysia you know, what people are cross-country working, especially now post-COVID, everybody is work from home or, or uh, you know, working uh, not in the same country and just working online. So the example that I'd like to give is the migrant workers that I've met, and not just in one country, in almost any country that I've met migrant workers, and they're not able to speak the local language they spontaneously just jury rig whatever mobile phone devices using the auto translate tool and and you know the auto translation tool exists in more than just the the cell phone whatsapp and and texting or facebook ms teams has an auto translate button and even in my corporate training program nowadays uh, as i'm training people across the globe and these are high level you know c level people, they didn't even realize that there's such tools of auto-translation. And so the, the method of doing work nowadays to use these tools, either just record your voice when you're unable to type fast enough and then have the machine auto-translate the transcription of your, your audio voice, or to just allow the AI on the, the system, the platform to translate for you And then to have the skill to know when not to trust the auto translation, because maybe there's some grammar errors or some audio discrepancy because the the sound accent is different. But those are some new skills that I spontaneously learned, had to learn. And I learned it from migrant workers and just, you know, people on the street. So you don't need to go to school anymore. I guess that's the Fundamental thing that I'm trying to point out: we need to start learning from the university of life.
0: I think something that I want to point out here that I think is really important when we talk about the future of, of literacies, and just based on on what you were just talking about there, Roz, with auto translate, and I, I'm just sitting here thinking a little bit about some of the things that are lost with the development of the, or with the need for these new skills. So I'm, as somebody who learned a foreign language as an adult, I moved to a country where I couldn't speak the language before, you know, auto-translate was really, really a thing. And, you know, Humboldt said, uh, Wilhelm Humboldt, not Alexander, that you could only really understand a culture once you can speak the language. And as somebody who had learned, you know, learned a second language as an adult, I definitely think that that is true. And I I think that there's something here around the, you know, the loss of a a depth of understanding. And I wonder how that kind of plays in to the to the fact that we do want people to develop these new skills. We do want to encourage people to live in the world in a way that, you know, is is more accessible, that helps them to have more learning experiences in an easier, easier way. But how do we actually keep some of the cognitive gymnastics that happen when you actually struggle to understand things or when you struggle to read things. Because I think there's like a critical critical thinking piece that can, you know, sometimes get lost when you just use Google Lens to translate the menu instead of thinking about how the language looks or feels or what it might mean.
2: So Laura, I invite you to pause for a second. And this is why when I do coaching to my students, I remind them that the word literacy, unfortunately, in the modern world, we forget the original meaning of literacy. There's more to literacy than just linguistics. Linguistics is not literacy. It's just one example. There's, there's, you know, body language, there's nuances and the online AI world has its own language literacy too. For example, and and and, you know, I'm I'm usually very passionate talking about this because you know that's what my whole thesis was about, which, you know, I remember when I defended it, people laughed at me, but now it's not a laughing matter anymore. Think about like when you send an email, there's an expectation of an email to be responded maybe a day later, maybe two days later but if you send a text message the expectation is maybe within an hour sometimes within 5 minutes so just this small example that's literacy the knowledge of rules and protocols when two parties or three parties communicate that's literacy as well so it's not just language in the traditional sense so you may lose quote unquote lose the traditional or conventional comprehension of communication but if you if you open your mind to the possibilities that there are other types of literacies that the normal old-fashioned people like you and me who are born in the olden days we have not begun to learn the new literacies but if you talk to some of the the younger generation or even the older people who've embraced the new technologies like those people who went from cavemen uh, all the way to cyber world uh, who jumped a few generations of technology to them it's like no big deal because they know what that literacy is. It's those of us who are still holding on to the old definition of literacy. We we feel that we've lost something. But I think if we dare to open our eyes to the possibility of new ways of communicating that are not yet apparent to us, that, that would be wonderful. I mean, just think of our great-grandparents' time when they didn't even have phones. Uh, to them, picking up a phone to talk to somebody, that wasn't personal at all. But to us, that's normal because we know that we can have an audio podcast and not see the face, and it's still the human talking. So in the same way, that, you and I, were are is... not used to the new one, you know, the new literacy.
1: I think that's a great point, was So, um, you know, Antonio Gramsci said that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. And a lot of what you've described in terms of literacy practices are to some extent generation-based, based based on kind of age, but then literate practices aren't bound by kind of what chronological age you are, but rather when you adopt different practices and and things. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, I was talking to a neighbor the other day and they, they used the phrase party line. Which I've only ever heard Americans <laughs> talk about, you know, like in terms of being on the same line as a neighbor and having to get off the uh-huh. line and potentially your neighbor being able to listen into your, yep. your phone calls. Yeah, yep. I remember, I grew up with that. Yeah, I can remember the next stage of that, which was sitting on the stairs, talking on the phone, trying to keep my voice down so that people didn't hear me talking to a girl or my, you know, friend or whatever. <laughs> Whereas now, of course, you know, you have your individual phone calls. We no longer have a landline because there's no particular need for one, et cetera. But I also wanted to kind of chart the development of things like read receipts. So you talked about um emails there. You still can. It used to be something that happened, you know, uh you could request a read receipt and then you had the option of whether to send that read receipt or not. Same with text right. messages back in the day. But now one of the literate behaviors I wanted to get to was, you know, my daughter is 12 and she is already quite kind of subtle in terms of that double tick read receipt kind of thing on Mm -hmm. WhatsApp and Signal and whatever. Mm -hmm. And how to kind of play the game of whether they've seen something before someone sees something else and, and all this kind of stuff. And these are and there's also practices. apps
2: that do you know that there's now apps that can simulate those or to hold it off so that you can actually read your messages and not let your um, the other person know whether you've read it or not. Uh, mm. So there, there are apps now that can counter the tools in the original app. So so it just goes to show there's a different level of literacy going on there to the point that people are inventing apps to counter what those devices are doing.
1: Uh, that does not surprise me at all. And the, the the privacy element, which has been kind of running throughout this conversation about to what extent do you give up some notion of people knowing more about you than you would usually be comfortable with in order so that you can get some kind of benefit to you? So that might be bubble, bubble tea, but it might also be to quell the anxiety that you've got because your kid or your aged relative or a friend or a partner has gone somewhere and you want to make sure they 're okay like to what extent do we kind of trade these things, and to what extent is that part of literacy that that knowledge about what constitutes public private, and kind of data that you're giving up to corporate people or the government as well it, it's well, really let interesting. me
2: let me give you a real example that 's even more scary than the the question that you've posed. What you're posing is just privacy. Maybe, maybe there's an embarrassment as an as the worst case scenario there. But let me just Tweak that example a little further into sort of a doomsday terrible scenario. If we don't learn to embrace these new literacies, if we continue to say that's not for me, I prefer where I currently am, we stand to put ourselves at serious risk. And so, here's an example. I noticed my my mom and my stepdad. You know, they they go to the clinic uh, as a as a senior citizen. You have to go like like every 6 months every 3 months get your checkup whatever and here in Malaysia everything is digitized you no longer use anything in the written form ever since covid everything is paperless so everything has a qr code you go in and even just to get a number to wait in line to see the doctor you have to open your app on the phone and scan the qr code at the the doctor's place and then your phone which can no longer be shared with another person each individual person must have their own phone otherwise they cannot get the services from the uh, facility and then even if there's a printout like the actual label from the pharmacy so that you know that the medication that you're picking up at the pharmacy it's got a QR code on it and because everything is codified with QR codes here comes the scary part if the person receiving this medication with a QR code printed on it. After you're done with the medication, then what happens? You, You throw away that plastic piece or that paper envelope, but another person can pick it up. And if they have the right app, they now have access to your name, your social security number, your passport number, your birth date. All that private data. And that's why, like right now, I know in Malaysia, they're putting up a new law. I think it's being tabled in parliament at the moment to heighten data security because that's what's happening. People are not realizing that, you know, just by simply going through someone's trash bin, lots of people are getting scammed uh, in the banks. because, Because your private data is right there on every label.
1: That's incredible. Yeah. And it just goes to show how the ultra technocratic solutions that often companies like to sell to governments really Mm -hmm. do require that last mile training for people. The equivalent of that in the UK, because everyone's kind of football soccer mad, is digital ticketing being brought in for for fans and going to football matches and some having Mm -hmm. not even smartphones and like not being able to get into the ground and this causing them Huge amounts of, of pain and things. We're going to have to wrap up. So there's just a kind of a, a wrap-up question we wanted to ask, just in case we we haven't covered everything that we'd prepared. So that is the kind of key essential question for this podcast series, which is about how we see the future of media and information literacies in theory and practice. Is there anything else that you wanted to say, Roz, before we finish up?
2: Well, I'd like to say... That it's important for each one of us to just pause and be non-judgmental take a look at actually what's happening around us if you see anything that irks you or or you know it, it just makes you want to go no I don't want this or that's terrible just pause for a second and withhold your judgment because there are a lot of things that we do not yet know and It's very dangerous to just pass judgment on what we do not yet know because sometimes those things that we're not familiar with or that other people seem to do that we're not familiar with, well, maybe there's a solution in there that we need to start learning how to do. No matter how unsavory it may seem or unintuitive it may seem, just pause and and don't judge. more accepting of the other you know because you'll you'll never know that somebody else's way of doing something will be the way of the future
1: that's great that's a great lesson to to finish on and it comes from all of your experience in different cultures and different sectors and and things so Roz, thank you very much for contributing to season eight of this podcast which is for the journal for media Literacies winter 2023 special edition if people want to find out more about you and your work or follow you anywhere on on social media where should they go
2: they can look for me in linkedin facebook twitter instagram i live online
1: excellent well thank you again and cheers for now